0: Well, Happy New Year to you all. This will be our first message this year. Um, today we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 6. We're finishing off the second half of a two-part series that we started two weeks ago on the topic of prayer. And if you remember two weeks ago, I spoke on how not to pray. And there was three things that we spoke upon as to how not to pray. And today we're going to be looking at what is arguably one of the most well-known And most studied prayers of all times, where Jesus is now going to teach us how to pray. And so, if you have your Bible, let's turn to Matthew chapter 6, and we'll be looking at verse 9 through 15 this morning. Matthew 6, 9 through 15. It says, In this manner, therefore, pray Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I don't know if there's anyone in the room who hasn't already heard of this prayer before or who hasn't read it before at least once in their life. Uh, And this section is pretty well known as the Lord's Prayer, but I would argue that it's probably better noted to be called the Disciples' Prayer because it's a prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples, and we read about this encounter where the disciples actually asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. In Luke 11, it says, now when it came to pass, as he, that is Jesus, was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And so... You can only imagine what it would have been like to hear the Lord pray and to hear what he was saying to his father. And they must have been overwhelmed by the way he prayed that they said, Lord, we don't pray like that. Teach us to do also like you do. Teach us to pray in that same manner. And so Jesus, in answer to their question, in answer to the response, gives them this model prayer, this example, if you will. I remember in uh, algebra, they would always give us an example or a model of what the problems look like before we then go do the problems. Um, and so that's the same idea here. It's just an example, uh, a template, if you will, of how to pray. But a lot of meaning, well-meaning Christians will then take this prayer and say, okay, this is the only way to pray, and these are the only words we can use to pray, and nothing else is acceptable. But that's not, that's not what was intended here, because ultimately when we do that, or if we do that, you end up leading to people just repeating the same prayer over and over again to the point where it means nothing. They're just saying the words repetitively. And in fact, that's exactly what Jesus warned us about two weeks ago, saying don't use repetitive phrases, empty, meaningless phrases that hold no weight, that carry no real significance in what you're saying. And, um, and so what we see is that he doesn't want, and he's not pleased with prayers that are meaningless or empty. Um, something that comes to mind too that when, when I'm looking at this prayer is just how short it is. If you notice, I've, I said the prayer in less than 30 seconds. It was, you know, maybe 50 words or so. And though it was short, there was so much meaning to it because we're going to be spending the next hour looking at it, but there's just so much to uncover in it, even though it's very, very short itself. And it's not to say that <clears throat> prayers have to only be a certain, you know, length of you know, this many words or whatever, but the idea is you don't need to go on and on and on when you're not saying anything else just to, sing, just to think that God will hear you for your many words. The idea is that you can say a lot with, you know, without having to go on for no, no particular reason. And, uh, I mean, how often have you heard someone pray and you wonder sometimes when they pray a long prayer, are they saying it for the benefit of the audience or is it for the benefit of God? And so that's the idea that we're trying to avoid is not being... Here to say many words that God's pleased, uh, but saying things that genuinely just convey our heart of what we're, we're trying to express to him. Um, also, we talked about two weeks ago the idea that we're not to pray to be seen. The idea that the Pharisees would go out wanting to be seen and wanting to be noticed. God's saying he's not pleased. He said, rather go to, your, go to your private room and pray there. And then he also mentions, you know, we're not praying with the idea that somehow we're informing God of our needs. He knows everything before we pray. And yet we still pray to him because we're reminded that we are dependent upon him for everything. And so now that we're kind of just recapped shortly on what we talked about last time on how not to pray, it brings us to the right mindset today to now look at how to pray. And so this is the example that Jesus gives us starting off in verse 9. The prayer starts off like this. Our Father in heaven... And I just want to stop there with the first phrase. I know we could go farther, but let's just look at that first phrase because it says so much. Our Father in heaven. Imagine being able to address God as our Father. The closeness that that shows. As believers in Christ, we have a closeness to God. And it reminds us too that we are speaking to a person. Oftentimes when people pray, they, you know, they think they're speaking to the clouds or some you know, abstract idea of who they're praying to. No, you are praying to a person. This is God in heaven. And, uh, and really, it, it's, it's a conversation that we're having with him. And, um, y- you know, you would speak to him the same way you would speak to a close friend. You know, he is your creator, yes. He is the one who sustains you every moment, yes. He is the one who is all-powerful, almighty, all-knowing, and yet, if you are a believer in Christ, it says that God is our Father. And I think we don't realize necessarily the weight of that until we realize that it wasn't always like that. We did not know, always know God as our Father. We once knew Him uh, when we were enemies before God. We once knew Him as a judge who would judge us rightfully for our sins and for our, the actions that we committed against Him. We knew that He would fairly uh, judge us and sentence us to death, which was the wages for our sins. Uh, before we came to Christ, we didn't know I didn't really focus on spending time to get to know God. We didn't give Him much thought. We just continued living in our sin, living our own ways. Before coming to Christ, we were hopeless. We had no hope for eternity. And now, we can look at the love that God showed us. And we see this in Romans 8. It says, But God demonstrated His own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been having now been justified by his blood we shall be saved from the wrath through him for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to god through the death of his son much more having been reconciled shall we be saved by his life and not only that but we also rejoice in god through our lord jesus christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation and this idea is that while we were still enemies of god while we still didn't even give him a second thought He sent his own son to die for us. Which, if we just simply place our faith in him, we can have a righteous standing before God. No longer are we at odds with him. No longer are we enemies. No longer are we separated from God. No longer are we afar off. He has now adopted us into his family, and he has made us sons and daughters. And now as sons and daughters, we have this incredible privilege to call him father. And Galatians 4 or 6 talks about this idea It says, and because you are sons of God, God has sent forth his spirit of his son into your heart, crying out, Abba, Father. As many of you guys know, the word Abba means daddy, literally translated. And it's this idea of, you know, in the schoolyard when kids uh, are waiting for their parents to pick them up and, um, you know, you see one parent come and the next one. But when you finally see that kid, when his father comes and they run up, daddy, and open arms and they, they give this embrace and they start hugging each other. It's that idea, it's that intimacy, that closeness that we have with our Father. We can call Him Daddy, Father. And um, it's, it's incredible because we have this access to God, the one who's sovereign over all, and yet we call Him Father. Not coming before Him with uncertainty or fear or, you know, I'm not sure if I can approach Him. No, we boldly come before Him crying out, Abba, Father. So, Remember, when we pray, we are praying to God of the universe, and yet he is also our heavenly Father. The next phrase says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Often, we don't really use the word hallowed anymore, but the word simply just means uh, to show reverence to, to view as holy, to honor, to show respect to the name of God. And Jesus is just emphasizing here that respect is due to the name of God the Father, that Um, yes, he loves us, yes, we have this intimate relationship with him, but we also realize he is the only and one and true God who is holy and supreme over all and almighty. And he is worthy of all of our praise and adoration. And so when we approach him, we approach him with a readiness to praise him, to honor his name, because he's worthy of it all. And so the first verse already gets us in the right mindset of who we are praying to. And notice now that in verse 10, the first request is that God's plans and his will would be done. Verse 10 says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. This is uh, something that I think about when I look at back on history, of the amount of rulers, the amount of kingdoms that have come and fallen over the centuries, over the decades. You know, most people nowadays, their leadership lasts four years, eight years, maybe 10 years even. It comes and it goes. And there's one common thread with all of these rulers and leaders, is that none of them are perfect. All of them have their faults. None of them truly know what's entirely best for every single person there in society. No one is entirely just in every single action. You can just watch the news, you can see constantly in every country the corruption under certain different governments. And there's no one who is perfectly righteous. And yet we know that one day there will be a righteous ruler. Right now we have ultimately Satan who is under control over this world. God is sovereign over him, but right now we don't have a ruler who is perfectly just, perfectly righteous. But one day we will. One day Jesus Christ will reign on this earth and he will rule justly, righteously, perfectly, in every situation. Doesn't that excite you to look forward to that day, one day when, you'll, when he'll be reigning here on earth? Do you ever pray, Lord, your kingdom come now. Lord, I can't wait for that day to have you physically reigning here as the righteous ruler. Because it's going to happen in one day. He will be here on earth. And so as believers, it's telling us we should pray for that day to come. And in doing so, we're agreeing with God that the plan he said will take place is good and that we eagerly wait to see it happen and fulfilled. It then goes on in the prayer to say, your will be done. It says you know, essentially when we're saying this, we're saying, yes, I agree with everything that you're saying. I look forward to the day that your kingdom and rule comes. I look for the day that your plan is fulfilled the way you intended. But also with that same phrase in mind, we are also, do we ever pray in our own lives, Lord, let your will be done in my life. Let your will be done in the world around me. Because oftentimes I think we say this phrase, Lord, let your will be done, but sometimes the, the result of it isn't always what we hoped it would have been or thought it should have been. Oftentimes we say, Lord, why did you allow this to happen in my life? Lord, why have I not received this promotion that I thought I have been praying for so long that I thought was what I wanted? Why, Lord, do I not see the results when I've been praying for a spouse? Why haven't I seen that? Or why am I going through this trial, Lord? Why have you allowed this to happen? And really, when we pray this prayer, um, we are saying, you know what? Lord, you know best, even though this is not the way I saw my life going, even though this is not according to my plan or what I thought should happen. I am going to surrender my own will, my own plans or thoughts for the future, and say that you know best. You are sovereign. You know everything. And so, Lord, I commit this to you, that your will be done in my life, regardless if this is not how I intended or thought it would go. And... Uh, If this sounds familiar, this phrase of your will be done, um, it's because it is. It's found in Luke uh, 22, later when Jesus was going to the Garden of Gethsemane before he was nailed to the cross. It says, he, that is Jesus, was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and praying, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And you see, that's essentially, Jesus was a living example of what it means to say, your will be done, and to actually mean it. He came to do the Father's will. He desired to do the Father's will, even if it meant that he would have to die on the cross for sinners like you and I. Even though it meant he would have to die for crimes he didn't commit. He was willing to go that far to have the Father's will accomplished. And so it's an example to us to be like Christ, to pray, not my will, but yours be done. On earth as it is in heaven, this phrase is basically expounding upon the three previous things that have been already said. It's saying, you know, God's name in heaven is being revered, it is being worshiped. Um, in heaven, he is ruling righteously. And in heaven, his will is being done. It's already a reality in heaven. But what this phrase is saying is saying, let the worship of God's name Let his kingdom come and let his perfect will become a reality on this earth just as it is a reality already in heaven. And so already we've said so much in already just two verses. We've acknowledged God as our father. We've acknowledged his name is to be respected. We've realized who we're praying to. We have this eternal mindset of we wait for the day when he is eternally reigning. We wait for his will in our lives regardless of whatever the outcome may be, because he is perfect in his will. And so really, this is the perfect perspective to bring our request before. We first put Christ and his uh, will and his purpose at the forefront of our lives before we then bring our own requests before him in verse 11. In verse 11, it says, give us this day our daily bread. And keep in mind, like I said, this is a template for a prayer. It doesn't mean that the only thing you can pray for is bread. Clearly, you know, there's more things you can pray for. But it's just saying that you can pray for something even as small as bread, and God will provide that for you. It's such a basic request, and yet it really says a lot. It says, God, I'm not even able to provide for myself even just food on the table. I am fully dependent upon you to even bring this food to my table. I need you, I'm dependent upon you for everything that you supply. And if you really think about it, that's very true. The clothes on your back, the job you have, the energy you have to go to your job, all the, you know, the husband, the wife you have, your kids, all of these things were given to you by your Heavenly Father. There is nothing you have, down to your very breath, that doesn't come from Him. And so, when we realize this, um, we're essentially saying, Lord, supply me with just what I need today. Supply me with everything because I know it comes from You. And, um, Notice too that the prayer isn't, you know, Lord, give me a lifetime supply of bread or Lord, give me a million dollars or Lord, give me, you know, a good job that will last me through the rest of my life and hopefully retirement and then for the grandkids after that. No, it's just simply, Lord, supply my daily needs for today. Each time that I come to my table, let me be realizing that this came from your hand, that you were good again today. You were faithful again to me today. And um, I think the reason that God wants us to pray so much on our daily needs is because it makes us realize, uh, you know, if we got these things all at once, I think we'd quickly forget who gave it to us. But when we pray day after day, thanking the Lord for the things he's given us, we realize, wow, every single thing, every single day, I am growing more and more dependent upon him. And that's exactly how it should be. He's teaching us that no matter what the needs are, it comes from him. And like I said, this is not to say that we can only pray for bread. We can pray for bigger things. But it's simply saying that God is interested in your small needs, all the way up to the big needs, and everything else in between. Oftentimes I would say that I've been guilty, though, of, of thinking that, you know, maybe that's too big of a request. I don't know if God would, you know, I don't know if he would actually answer that or, you know, or if he's, maybe that's just too much I'm asking for. And um, it's not that God isn't able to answer your prayers it's not that God isn't able to do what I ask. In fact, it's just the, the opposite. It's, it's, the problem is that my view of his ability to answer my prayers is distorted. James 4 clearly tells us, you, ha- you do not have because you do not ask. The idea is that God is willing to give us so much more if we would just ask him boldly. He's willing to do so much more for us if we would just be willing to uh, offer the request before him. And so in order to kind of show you that, I kind of want to have an interactive little section in this message with you. So if you have a physical copy of your Bible or if you have your own, um, preferably physical copy, but if you don't, then on your phone, I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Uh, if you don't have anything uh, physical copy-wise, then you can just go to your phone and go to your notes section and just kind of write along with me. Um, but I want you to be encouraged by the fact that God is capable of doing so much more than you even could imagine. So Ephesians 3, verse 20, reads this. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. Now I read that really quickly, but um, you probably caught a gist of what I was saying. You probably caught most of it, but probably half of it you kind of didn't fully understand. And so, I want to kind of break this down piece by piece. My nephew Justin, he's been uh, really into Legos recently, and if you know anything about Legos, you're just piecing it together piece by piece to make this bigger picture of what you're trying to make through the small little pieces. And so, right now, I want you to, with me, if you have a pen, or if you use your phone, uh, I want us to put this together and construct it the way I think it's intended to be. So, if you have a pen, put a number one next to the word ask. A number one next to the word ask, a number two next to the word all, a number three next to the word think, a four next to the word above, and a five next to the word abundantly, and a six next to the word exceedingly. And so we'll kind of piece it together as we go. So in its most basic form, it says, now to him who is able to do what we ask. So you can show that one. Um, Basically, it's saying God is able to do what we ask. That's awesome. Our our Father is able to do what we ask of Him. Praise the Lord for that. Doesn't that excite you to, I I don't know about you guys, but that excites me to know that He is able to do whatever I ask of Him. It shows that we serve an all-powerful God. And so we just think about that for a second, and then we move on to the second part. Number two is the word all. Now to him who is able to do all that we ask. Do you know anyone else besides God who's able to do everything that you ask of him? Who is able to do all that we ask. Everything you ask God, he is more than capable of doing. But not just that, we look on to number three. The word now is think. Now to him who is able to do all that we ask or even think. To anyone who's ever thought, man, wouldn't that be nice if God would just do this in my life, or wouldn't it be nice if God would grant this in my life? It's saying that he is able to do all that we ask or even just think. It's incredible. Think about the times that you you wanted to ask but you didn't because you were unsure that God would be able to do it. It's saying here that he is able to do all that we ask or even just think. And you say, well, that, 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 that pretty much covers it all. I couldn't imagine much more than that. But we go on even further to number four, the word above. Now it's a him who is able to do above all that we ask or think. This is basically saying that had you asked asked God for something, or had you even just thought to ask God for something, he is not only capable of doing it, he's able to even go above and beyond that. I think about my own life, how many times i prayed to God, and yet I saw him answer it to a greater extent than I had even anticipated him doing it. And it's saying that God is able to do above all that we ask or think. And it goes even further than that, though, with number five, abundantly. Now to him who is able to do abundantly above all that we ask or think. And the idea is, beyond your wildest imaginations, God is able to do more than that. He is able to do above all that we ask or think. The idea here is that you've only just seen the tip of the iceberg. There is untapped resources that God is able to expend however he pleases. And at this point, you're just saying, well, I mean, how could he even add more words than that? but it goes on even further, exceedingly. Number six, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. At this point, I'm just having difficulty wrapping my mind around it, but (laughs) Jesus is saying that, yes, we can ask him for our daily needs, but we also should be reminded continually that it's well within his power to do so much more than just that. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or even think. And so the thought here is to ask him. The thought here is to make our request known to him. The idea here is also that this should be an encouragement to us that prayer does work. God does answer our prayers. He is willing to. And uh, whatever we ask our Father in heaven, it is well within his power to grant us. So ask. On a side note, I felt obligated to bring this up at some point because I think most people are familiar with it. Who here has heard of the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S, in reference to prayer? Uh, If you haven't heard of it, it's a very well-known acronym um, that stands for um, A, adoration, which is where we worship God for who he is. The C is for confession, where we confess our sins before him and ask for forgiveness. The T is thanksgiving, where we thank God for the blessings that have come from him and into our lives. And the S is supplication, where we make our requests known for ourselves or for other people. And um, it's kind of a format that some people follow, and uh, it kind of helps give a, a rubric or like a kind of a template maybe of how you could pray. But there are some people who are very insistent that Acts is the only way or the only format that we can pray. And then I was reading about this, that there's another group that's, says, no, it shouldn't be acts. It should be cats because we need to confess before we adore. And I just want to be careful that we don't put all these rules and all these regulations on how exactly we pray. Um, Because ultimately, if we look at the prayer lives of other people, for example, I look at the prayer life of David. Sometimes his prayers, although they were psalms, they were prayers. And sometimes it's just he's just adoring the Lord for who he is. Sometimes his whole prayer is just, Lord, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you are magnificent. I praise you, Lord. Thank you for all that you've done in my life. Sometimes he's just uh, just confessing. Think of Psalm 51. He's just confessing before the Lord his sin and asking for forgiveness. Um, and so I don't think that you have to follow necessarily a rubric like this. Uh, and even the, the prayers of Jesus, sometimes he's just um, making supplication to his father. Uh, sometimes he's just adoring his father. And there's there is constantly um, also noted in Jesus' prayer is just the conversation he's having. And I think to the very core of prayer, it's just having a conversation with our Father. It's, you know, we have this relationship with him. We have the ability to call him our Father. And now we should remember that when we pray. I mean, think about how you speak with someone who's the closest to you your wife, your husband. How do you speak with your best friend? I'm sure you tell them everything that's on your heart. I'm sure that you tell them, you know, how you're feeling. I'm sure that you don't come with them and say, you know, checking a box, um, you know, honey, I just wanted to say that I really appreciate this about you first. And you don't don't go with canned lines with them. You're just having a conversation because that's naturally how it flows. And the same would be true with our father is that we don't come before him with maybe a certain, you know, text box of what we need to check first. We just come before him openly expressing everything that's on our heart as a conversation. And the beauty of it is that we don't have to hide anything from him because he knows already what's on our heart. He knows everything about us. And so we come before him, speaking to him as if we would, have, as if we would to a dear friend or to a close one. And uh, it's, it's amazing that we have this personal relationship once we get saved, where we can approach our father with anything and he still listens to us. Okay, moving on to verse 12. It says, And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This is where the the sea of Acts would come into play. uh, Confession. Keep in mind that as believers, uh, your relationship is always the same with him. Once you are saved, we're not praying for him to forgive us our sins so that we can be saved again. No, once you're saved, you are always saved. The idea here is talking about parental forgiveness from our Father. It's saying that Lord forgive me for the sins that I commit on a daily basis. <clears throat> and essentially here we're saying that we're asking God to forgive us our sin or forgive us our sins, yeah, to the same degree that we have forgiven those who have sinned against us. And on the flip side it also means that if you haven't forgiven your brother of the sins they've committed against you, then that means your father has not forgiven you of your sins. So he won't forgive you of your sins much less answer the prayers that you bring before him. Until you first address your brother's problem, in verse fifteen is kind of a, in this prayer. It kind of is at the end of it, but it's really kind of just an addendum that kind of expounds upon this verse. In verse fourteen, it says, "For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses." So forgiveness towards men for their sin is a prerequisite. for for, for God forgiving you of your sin. So until you have forgiven your brother or sister, your fellowship is broken. You're going around with a grievance against your brother or sister. That means that God has not forgiven you either, which means that there's something between you and your heavenly father. I mean, think about the relationship of a parent and a child. How is it when things are um, not going well and, and there's a conflict in the home? Things aren't going too hot. And how is the, how's the, how's the, you know, the conversation between the two? It's almost non-existent until something's addressed. And the same idea is here with our father. It's that he's making a point that if we want a clear channel to God, if we want clear communication for him to hear our prayer and to answer them, then we first must forgive our brother and real, deal with that situation first before we then address him and, and ask for things in prayer. And the, really the idea here is try to give us a sense of urgency, that I need to deal with this now. I want my Father to hear my prayers. I want to speak with him and have a clear channel, so I need to forgive and resolve it right away. Verse 13 says, And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Now, some might take this verse and say, whew, you know, I almost sinned last week. I sure hope that God doesn't tempt me again this week to sin. And let's just be very clear that God does not tempt us. James is very clear about that in James 1. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt, does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So we see clearly God does not tempt us. He cannot be tempted. When we are tempted, we are constantly tempted by our own desires, by the influences of this world, and by Satan. And so it is a valid request, though, to pray to God that the desire to sin... And the opportunity for temptation would not coincide. That God would help deliver us from the temptation that the devil throws our way. It's saying, Father, I know in my own strength I can't resist this temptation. I am fully dependent upon your strength to help me get through this this temptation. Deliver me, Father, from this sin. Don't let it overcome me. Deliver me from the traps that Satan throws my way. Deliver me from dishonoring you in in this way. And on a practical note, um, people do struggle with overcoming certain sins. So this prayer is very helpful when you struggle with temptations. When you feel that there's an opportunity where you might be tempted, you can pray that the Lord would limit the possibility of the the opportunities for temptations. Pray that you wouldn't sin in that area today. Pray that you'd be delivered and given victory over that. Pray that sin would not master you. You can also pray... um, Lord, just give me the strength to overcome it. And that's a valid prayer to ask. But also realize that there is, in many ways, our own obligation on this side too. There's a lot of things that we can unnecessarily put ourselves into temptation. I think of people who struggle with alcohol. If you have that temptation, you need to get rid of anything that would hinder you or cause you to want to go back in that, in that way. For example, if you have things laying around the house, bottles of alcohol, it's probably good to get rid of those because it's constantly an opportunity for you to go back into your way of living. Uh, Maybe also the the places you surround yourself with. You know, if you tend to go to places where there's alcohol around, maybe you need to avoid those places because you're putting yourself unnecessarily in temptation's way. I think of also pornography. There's uh, constantly access available online, but are you gonna put filters on there or are you gonna allow yourself to just, whatever happens, happens. Um, there's also, you know, movies, videos that we can see, you know, that are still quote-unquote PG-13 or whatever. And yet there's opportunities for us to, to fall into the same temptation because there's so much accessible to us. And so the idea is if you know that these places will tempt you, if you know that this place is a place of weakness, then you need to avoid whatever it may be that might hinder you or cause you to go back into that sin. It wouldn't make sense for us to say, Lord, prevent this opportunity of temptation to happen and then to go running on to a line and trying to find something there. The idea is eliminate whatever would cause you to stumble and to fall back into sin. And the prayer ends with this, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And this prayer essentially ends by agreeing that everything belongs to the Lord. We're saying, yes, Lord, you deserve to be king over all. You deserve to rule righteously. Lord, let your kingdom come. Lord, I, I, I see your power. I see that everything I have comes from you. And I'm reminded of that before, as I come before you. Lord, you deserve the glory that comes from my lips. You deserve the glory that comes from my life. You deserve the glory that comes from all the answered prayers. In this year, in the following years, and in all the past years. You deserve all the glory for that. Lord, you are worthy of all my praise and adoration. And you deserve not only all this adoration for this year, or for this month, or for this decade, but forever, you deserve it all. Forever, you deserve these things. Amen. And that's essentially how the Lord's Prayer ends. But as I I was thinking about this, I just had to take a step back and realize what all this was saying. I, I don't know if you fully comprehend it or fully realize it yet, but we have the opportunity 24-7, 365 days a year, and even on leap years, to come before our Father, who is always available to us, always ready to hear us. He's never too busy for us, never, uh, you know, have to pencil him in. He's always there for us to hear our prayers. And not just hear our prayers we know that he is able to answer them exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. Because he is all-powerful. But also keep in mind, we have this this relationship with him, too, that he is our Father. This closeness to him. It's really amazing, as I was studying through this, to just realize the privilege we have to come before him in prayer. And... um, Better than all that, he loves you so much. He loves you with an exceedingly profound love to the point where he even gave his own son for you. And it should be an encouragement to us that oftentimes when we think or when we don't pray as often, it should encourage us, man, why don't I pray more? He is able to do all that I ask. He he desires to have this communication with me. I ought to pray more often. And so I hope that it's an encouragement to you as you look through the Lord's Prayer to see how willing he is to answer our prayers and to see um, how awesome of a relationship we can have with him um, through prayer. And so it's my prayer that this year and in the years to come, we would regularly rely upon him, be dependent upon him in prayer and just watch faithfully day by day him answer those prayers and answer our requests. And So with that, let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we're just so thankful for everything that we can, we can bring before you in prayer. Thank you for hearing us. Thank you that we know that you are able to do so much more than we ask or even think. Thank you, Lord, that you are our Father. Thank you that you hear us. Thank you that you are available to us 24-7. I pray, Lord, that we would apply um, the message that you have today into our own lives and into this coming year. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.